the fire was on on the stove. You could see it flicker and the pot was large. Large and it was full of something that smelled great. From a distance you could tell it had been slowly cooking over time and the scent filled the room. Smelled a little bit like garlic. Just a little. As I walked in, I felt a sense of happiness. I like garlic. I moved closer to the kitchen and then I, and I could see it. And you could see the steam rising from the pot as the lid was open and you could hear it bubbling, gurgling. It was a full pot of beans, gurgling, slowly moving about. I reached in, took a big spoonful, blew on it, some beans and some of that nice, like, uh, soup that comes out with the beans. Mmm, took a bite. Mmm. Somebody forgot the salt. Have you ever tried to eat beans without any salt? It tastes like mush. It tastes like dirt. No salt. It's strange when you try to eat something and you're missing the salt. It's strange when the salt goes missing. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But what if the salt goes missing? Turn your Bibles, please, if you brought one in the book of Matthew. We are in the book of Matthew, first gospel of the New Testament. If you didn't bring one today, if you're visiting with us, welcome to our church. Um, There is a... uh, Bible in the pew right in front of you, or you can pull out your uh, smartphones and call up your Bible app and look at Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 5. As we begin to look at Jesus' explanation of who He is and who God is, the God He represents, He began to tell us in the last couple of weeks that He had come to bring a new world order. Jesus begins his earthly ministry, is what we call it, when he finally started doing what he was meant to do by saying, I have come to tell you something. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. So get yourself ready. And there here in in, in the book of Matthew chapter 5, he begins to roll out the principles of the kingdom. We studied them a little bit more in detail the last couple of weeks. And Jesus seems to say something countercultural. He seems to say things that are opposite to the way things have been going. We call that a culture changer. Jesus said things like, verse 3, chapter 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Remember these, blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Actually very revolutionary concepts in their day and in our day. And once he's done telling people what the kingdom is about, he then says these words. This is chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, what if? What if? You have undoubtedly heard that expression before. You are the salt of the earth. Salt is essential. Uh, <clears throat> we use it to flavor our foods, to, to create a chemical reaction that enhances the flavor of what we do. And of course, too much salt can get you in trouble. Some of you, um, by the sounds of it from the last couple of weeks, are on sodium-reduced diets, and you're probably not enjoying that quite as much. But it's, 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 it's fundamental to our cooking, salt. 
we bring sodium from all different kinds of ways. But, but in particular, it's much easier to use, you know, the, the, the salt shaker. And here Jesus is using a very common element of everyday life to explain a kingdom concept. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. I don't know that much about salt, how they uh, gather it, um, how they package it. I just know how to use it. But Jesus says, what if the salt loses its saltiness? Can salt lose its saltiness? I'm not a salt farmer uh, or gatherer. Can it? Maybe this is just hypothetical. Maybe it's real, but Jesus says, what if the salt lost its saltiness? What good would it be? Imagine throwing it on your plate and then having no change. Jesus says, if a salt loses its saltiness, it is no good, no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. He's trying to explain a concept. We don't always understand what the concept is, but we're going to try to unpack it here. He says, next verse, you are the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put her under a bowl, but they put it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Salt, salt and light, Christian concepts, salt and light. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. So what are you supposed to do? Last week we said that essentially your saltiness or the way God describes through Jesus here saltiness is in those concepts about Meekness and, and humility and, and peacemaking. And Jesus says that is the flavor that you bring to the earth. That is how you become a catalyst for cultural change in the earth. But then he says, but what if? What if you lost your saltiness? How can anyone lose their saltiness? How do you lose your saltiness? Jesus says, uh, these are these concepts that I'm bringing that kind of clear up what God is about and what he wants to establish. The kind of world, the kind of life, the kind of society, the kind of culture that he wants to put into play. And it's built upon those concepts. And then he says, the way we will change the world is actually through you and your particular effect on the world. That's what salt does. It doesn't completely change uh, the composition of, of, of the material that you're eating, but it changes the flavor. It changes how things taste. It changes how much you can eat of it. When there's no salt, people don't eat as much or drink as much. Salt has an effect on whatever it is that it's touching. And Jesus uses that example to say, we are going to change the world, the new world order, and how? Through you and the way you affect the world. You are the salt of the earth. It's an interesting concept, an interesting idea. But as he's proposing and presenting this, he essentially is bringing the message of God to the masses. He's bringing these concepts of, 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 of God's favor and making them accessible to regular people. As I've told you before, he's actually preaching in this moment, not to the elite, but to the common people. Blue-collar workers, 
day laborers, fishermen and the like. Yes, there are some elite uh, uh, thinkers listening in the crowd, but he's actually giving this message and the keys to this message to regular folk, common people, well, people like you and me. And he says, essentially, the kingdom belongs to you. The kingdom belongs to any of you who, who want to embrace these concepts. And in fact, he says, and you will take this kingdom and you are going to spread it out over the earth through your own personal effect. I want you to consider that for just a moment. Because most of you that are here with me today uh, on this Sabbath morning have some experience with Christianity. In fact, I'm going to guess that a good number of you have been Christians for, for a long time. For at least a few weeks, because you've been in here for a few weeks. I see you're familiar. I'm keeping record, in case you're wondering. No, I'm not. And if you have experience with Christianity, you've probably taken a class, or been part of a discussion group or a Bible study. You may have even been baptized, and you know the Christian commission. You know that Jesus essentially put it upon us to evangelize the world, send the good news, spread it out throughout the world. And we, and we do that as a church worldwide and, and locally through the efforts of the church. But Jesus actually takes in this moment this responsibility and removes it from the community and place it squarely on each little kernel of salt. And essentially, each and every one of us. Where he says, you are the salt of the earth. It's a fantastic concept. You know why? Because one tiny little grain of salt can affect some, but not a whole lot. There's more, the, the effect is multiplied. When you have a bunch, right? The more that's included. But it's made up of tiny little pieces, each representing one of you and one of us. And Jesus says, you have a responsibility, essentially. You have been given this gift, this message, this saltiness, and now you are to effect change upon the world. But what if you lose your saltiness? The people were listening there in the day, and yes, they included blue-collar workers who were scratching their heads, because up until this point, no one had actually given them such access to change the culture. No one had actually given them a sense of empowerment. Up until this day, in Jesus, in, in Jesus community, in Jesus world, common people were pushed down, kept down, usually held in place through guilt and shame and by the rules and obligations that the ruling class had established. Pharisees, Sadducees, and the like. Common folk lived under the mercy, or, or shall I say, under the judgment of those in the ruling class. And those in the ruling class would wield this, this power, this judgment, both uh, in civil cases as well as spiritual cases. And over the years, the ruling class had gone so far as to create all kinds of different stipulations and rules and, and things that you could do and could not do. There were prohibitions. There was rules in the hundreds that they had been established for this society. And essentially, these people, these common people, lived always under the threat of breaking rules and being punished for them. But here comes Jesus, and he seems to be opening up the gates, the floodgates, for the meek and the poor 
poor in spirit and, and for the peacemakers, those that society would consider weak and, 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 and pushovers, Jesus seems to be giving the kingdom away to them. He seems to be changing everything. He's essentially turning society on its ear. And that's why we call it culture changer. And the people were listening and they were scratching their heads and wondering, I don't see how that's possible. How can the meek inherit the earth? That doesn't work around here. How does someone in a humble spirit affect this church? Usually it's not the humble, but the proud who get things done. Jesus seems to be turning it on his ear, but not only for the blue-collar workers, but especially for the elite, for those who thought they knew everything about God. And Jesus sensed this, as he was telling. He sensed the uneasiness as he was proposing new concepts and ideas. He sensed their reluctance. He sensed their defiance. And he addresses it in this way. Please follow along with me if you've got a Bible. We're in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, capital L, or the prophets. Jesus says, don't think that I have come to get rid of everything that you know. No, I tell you the truth. I have not come to abolish them, but to actually fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear for the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of these least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what I like about Jesus. He just tells it like it is. First, he gives this thing about, you know, keep the commandments. I haven't come. But then he looks straight at the Pharisees and he says, unless you can do more than them, you're going to miss out on the whole thing. Pharisees were listening and trust me, they were not very happy. But I kind of know what that feels like. Sometimes past pastors, we have to say things that people don't like and they give us immediate feedback. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, stare downs. all kinds of interesting comments at the door. Yeah, we get it. But it's our job. We're supposed to say it. Jesus modeled that. When it's time to address the culture change, Jesus looks right at it and he says, unless you can do it differently than what you've been doing, you're going to miss out on the whole thing. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, he says, you will have no part in the kingdom. What do you mean? See, the Pharisees were, were, were focused on doing everything by the book, but it was a book that they had created to keep other people And Jesus comes along and he seems to be bringing people up. Pharisees were not very happy, obviously, being called out on the spot. I'm not sure you would be happy either if the pastor called you out by name for something that you've been doing or not doing. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you don't understand what we're trying to do. But he also says, I'm not telling you anything new. I'm simply trying to get you back to what it was supposed to be. I'm simply trying to tell you the original story. The original story. Pharisees were upset, obviously, and it all went downhill from there between them and Jesus. Jesus senses their reluctance and he addresses it. He says, I'm here to change the way things are, but I'm not here to change the way God intended it to be. 
They are one and the same. His intents and my intents are one and the same. It's just that you've lost it along the way. And this is an important concept for us to think, especially those of you that have been part of this church for a number of years or part of this denomination for a number of years. Maybe when you came in, maybe when you first learned about the gospel, maybe when the first you met Jesus, you understood the concepts of grace and humility and kindness. But over the years and through the experiences and through the hard knocks of being part of a local church, you have developed another set of rules or expectations. And if embrace a different way, and Jesus comes to challenge that. And he says, unless you get back to the way God intended it, you're going to miss out. Jesus says, let me explain. You have heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This is verse 21, chapter 5. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or who calls his brother a fool is answerable to the Sanhedrin. I'm sorry, uh, Rasa is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But if anyone says you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus tries to unpack what he's after. He says, you've heard this particular rule. If someone murders, that's from the commandments, I shall not murder. That's from the Old Testament. He says, you know and understand. But nowadays, as you begin to apply that, the Pharisees have created certain rules and expectations. And he says, if you violate them to this degree, you'll be in trouble. But I tell you, even if you just insult your brother, you're just as guilty. You're just as guilty. Jesus is essentially taking the concept of the commandment and stretching it so far that almost all of us, well, I'll tell you what, all of us are suddenly guilty. And he's doing that to explain to us why we need him in the first place, but also so that we will recognize that we are fooling ourselves at times into thinking that we're doing it right. Jesus says, it's not just that you don't kill somebody, but every time you insult somebody, you're killing them a little bit at a time. It's not just that you don't actually commit murder, but every time you give a dirty look, you're putting that person down. The intent is as important as the action. And you know why we need to hear that, Adventist Church? I'm going to be honest with you. Now, if you're new here, and this may not apply to the Bonita Church, I understand that, but in Adventism as a whole, we've created a set of rules and expectations, and we all know how to look right and where the rules are. But we have not been measuring our intentions. We have not been measuring or taking stock of what's going on in our hearts. We have not been careful to guard how we feel towards other people. We've just been careful not to do the wrong thing. Because other people can see that. But no one can see my heart. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to go far beyond just what other people can see. Righteousness is about what others cannot see. It's about what's in your heart. 
Jesus says, Therefore, verse 23, If you are offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still in the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison, and you won't get out until you've paid back every penny. He uses this expression. You probably heard it. Maybe you weren't paying attention, but I want you to stop for just a second. Jesus says, look and understand this. I want your righteousness to surpass just the things that others can see. I want you to consider that the way we truly change culture is with our intent, not just with our activity. This is the big difference. People around the world are doing things positive, social justice, but not everyone does it from a position of intention. Millionaires give away lots of money, but not necessarily because they want to change the world. The first motive might be a tax write-off or a PR move. I mean, we can't judge. We can't know. But God can, and God is essentially challenging that and putting that into question amongst us. And he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, first go. Put your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. Leave your gift there. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Consider that for just a moment, okay? Because I know that some of you are here and you come to church and you're here, you've come, and we all come together to praise God and we stand up and we sing, you listen to the pastor and you pray, you might even pray a prayer, and essentially we are coming to the altar. That's what this represents. The, the sanctuary is the place where the people of God would come and bring an offering to the altar, ever since the Old Testament, from Leviticus and on. And they would come and they would bring an offering that was uh, representing something in their life, whether it was a thank offering or a sin offering, etc., etc. And we have... You know, nowadays, symbolically taking that and we come to church and we bring something. Yes, the offering, the money that we bring, but we also bring ourselves. We bring our songs, we bring our thoughts, we bring our prayers. But Jesus says here, if you're coming to bring your gift to the altar, money, time, influence and all that stuff. But if you're coming to praise me, if you're coming to church to honor me and you remember that your brother has something against you. Don't even come in. Put your stuff down. And go back and be reconciled. If you're coming to worship, Jesus says, you want to know what I mean when I'm talking about intention? He says, if you're coming to worship and you realize that you had a fight with your wife, your son, your friend. Put your song down. Put your little suit and your tie down. Put your offering envelope down. First go back and apologize. First go back and be reconciled. Then come back and bring your gift. Wow. Wow. See, because I have a sense, I have a sense that that is really hard for us. Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you. I find this really interesting as I look into this word and look and try to understand it. Because actually Jesus puts the onus not on the person who is upset, but on the one who wants to worship God to be reconciled. So you and I live in a, in a world and a culture where we think if somebody does something wrong to me, they better apologize. 
They better make it right. You know, we live in this culture where, you know, we could get hurt really easily. I could be standing in line, you know, at the grocery store. If the lady looks at me the wrong way, I would say, I will speak to your manager. I will not be treated this way. I will take my business elsewhere. And you better apologize. And we get the manager to come out and she has to, I'm sorry, sir. Please have a nice day. And, and we, 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 we live in this culture, in this community where we will not be wronged. Don't cross me. And if you cross me, I will write it in my book. Now, some of you might actually have a literal book. (laughs) Women call it a journal. (laughs) Young people call it Facebook. Right? Where you jot down a post or an entry where you're just expressing your feelings, but what you're really doing is putting it on paper or on the computer to make sure that you remember and that everyone else knows publicly when somebody dissed you and did you wrong and hurt you. And then you wait to see when they're going to make it right. And Jesus says, I know you. I know you. So understand that I have come to teach you something more about God that you are not living. And that God is concerned with your heart, not just with what others can see. So if you want to worship this God and you know that you've hurt somebody, go and apologize. Or else your worship doesn't mean anything. But I want to take it a step further here because I want you to understand that Jesus says, be reconciled. You know what reconciliation means? Essentially, it means to take something that was once together is now broken apart and put it back together. Put it back together. The message of reconciliation is one that Jesus himself lives. The Messiah The Emmanuel is God once again with us. You know, God was with us at the beginning. Remember in the Garden of Eden? God could speak us face to face and then we broke that up. And Jesus comes again to essentially bridge this gap. The process of atonement of the Old Testament, the process of Jesus' death and resurrection is to bring us back together. We call it the ministry of reconciliation. Salvation and all that stuff is not about heaven. It's about getting us back together with our God. The way it was supposed to be. And this is the one message that is uniquely ours. As people of this culture, of this life, of this valley, we are supposed to bring this message. How? Through our humble spirit, through our meekness, through our kindness and generosity, that we are people of reconciliation. So Jesus says, you want to know how we're going to change the world? You want to know how you stay salty and affect the world? By reconciliation. Bringing things back together. By taking things that are broken and bringing them. And you know how you do that? Jesus says, go and apologize. Better yet, go and forgive. In actuality, this text doesn't just say if someone has if you've hurt somebody go and apologize the text essentially says if you know 
that you have conflict, even if they did it to you, you go and be reconciled. Then come back and offer your offering, your gift at the altar. You want to know how to lose your saltiness? Unforgiveness. Stop forgiving and you will lose your saltiness completely. If you choose not to forgive, you lose God's flavor immediately. Because God is a God of forgiveness. That is what motivates Him. His desire to love us, that He was unconditional. He needs to come to us even when we don't want Him. And He says, it doesn't matter. Though your sins be red as scarlet, I will. I will make them white as snow. Because that's who God is. That's the essence of who God is. He is reaching across the gap and reconciling. And the only way you can do that is to forgive. For He is faithful and just to forgive our sins. God does that through the person of Jesus Christ. God does that each and every day as He continues to put breath and energy into your body, even though the only thing you do is turn your back on Him and disrespect Him and ignore Him. But if you want to be a culture changer, if you want to be part of this kingdom, you've got to learn that God is about reconciliation. It's about forgiveness. The biggest obstacle that we face sometimes as individuals and as a church is that unforgiveness reigns among us. How do I know? Well, I'm not dumb. I can see it. I can hear it. I can sense it. I can sense it. In a study done uh, by the Hope College about the concept of forgiveness, they took some, some students, some college students, and asked them to imagine a situation where they were wronged and they did not forgive. And then they measured their physiological responses. And they found that people that, just imagine it, fictional situation, just imagine it, would sweat more, have their heart rate go up, blood pressure goes up, Facial muscle tension. Just at the thought of somebody who hurt you and you don't want to forgive. And you know what? Sometimes it's easy to see that, right? Just look around. You can hear it in the pitch of people's voices. You can see it in their expressions. Sometimes even right here. And God says, that's not the way of my kingdom. The way of my kingdom involves reconciliation. It involves releasing people from their obligation because I love them. Because I love them. A Gallup poll said, uh, asked people, Americans, uh, how important they thought it was to forgive. And 94% agreed that it's very important to forgive. But when asked if they usually do it, only 48% did. That means Americans, half of the people, according to their own words, don't usually forgive. Half of the people are carrying around grudges. And you know, it's funny because some of you are probably really good at it. Your parents taught you. Your friends taught you. You learn early on how to hold a grudge. And it just stays in. And it eats away at your saltiness. Unforgiveness. Holding grudges. Unwillingness to reconcile. 
removes the power of God from our equation. From our equation. You know why? Because to forgive somebody, it takes being humble. Being willing to say, you know what? I don't care about being vindicated. I just want to get back together. It takes a, a meek spirit to say, I will forego what belongs to me, my payment or whatever you owe me, and I'll just... It's more important to be reconciled. Unforgiveness unlocks the potential of acceptance. Unforgiveness creates a split church, a divided church where there's distrust, where there's uncertainty. But God does not want that for us. How do you lose your saltiness? You stop forgiving. Quickest way. And God does not want that for us. You want to know how you retain your saltiness and how we affect the world, how we become culture changers? Make a choice today, a willful, intentional choice to forgive. In fact, God says, you shouldn't even be here if you're holding a grudge. Go and settle that. Because how can you accept my forgiveness and then turn right around and refuse to give it to her, to him? To the person who posted on your Facebook page. Hmm? To the person who said something about you in the hallway. How can you accept mine and then turn around and deny it? It says it doesn't work. You won't understand what it means to be forgiven until you can start expressing forgiveness yourself. And that's how we change the culture. That's how we began to affect the culture right around, right here in the Bonita Church. In the Bonita Valley, in your work and in your, in, in, in your homes. That's how we began to affect. That's how one little kernel, which is you, begins to affect the world. That's how we are the salt of the earth. Yes, we want to go out, spread the message Send the gospel and evangelize. And we are doing that. Today, in fact, we are sending our very own missionary all the way across the world to India. We are doing that. But that great gift and sacrifice that Sue is making loses some impact, if not all its impact, if we right here in our home church refuse to forgive each other, refuse to be reconciled to one another. If we hold grudges and we say, nope, until they come crawling back to me, not going to do it. I'm not going to sit in the same pew with them. Mm -mm. I'm not going to join that woman's group with her because she said these things to me. I'm not going on this youth trip because the way they said that about me. And how can we impact the rest of the world if this is how we are at home? Right? You want to know how to lose your salt? Stop forgiving. You want to know how, how to empower the kingdom of God in your life? Reconciliation. Today's the day. Today's the day. Jesus Christ was our example. He did it first. He reconciled us to God so we could be one. And he says, as much as I have loved you and in the same way that I have loved you and gave up everything else, everything that I was entitled to, everything that is due to me, I gave it all up. 
because I love you. And I want to be with you, reconciled to you. And I will humble myself, no matter the circumstance, so that you know that. And that's the kingdom of God that Jesus is inviting us to. And, and church, we've got to start practicing that one in earnest. There are some hurts right here in our church and in our community. Some of us have been hurt and some of us have done the hurting. And we've got to reconcile. We've got to forgive. And we've got to allow ourselves to be forgiven. And then God's power will rise among us. And then our songs will take more meaning. And then our prayers will be empowered. And then our community will feel vibrant and like a family. Not just sitting in the same place. But like we're actually one. Reconciliation brings us back together. Then the songs we sing will make sense. Then the Jesus that we pray about will actually be here. Receiving our offering and our gift. Then we can confidently say on Jesus Christ, the solid rock, I stand.